podcast you're having tea with alice this week's episode is with tiff stevenson who is a friend of the podcast i've had her on before i very much like talking to her and i admire her greatly because she gets things done she's a powerhouse of production and creativity and she's also very generous in terms of helping other people in the industry not just in the way that people are you know not not talking to you at a bar because they're more famous than you that's sort of standard nice but she genuinely goes out of her way to help people she'll follow you up to help you which i think is such an unusual and admirable thing and i really always enjoy talking with her for those reasons as well as the fact that she's interesting and funny so we'll get to that but before that i wanted to do two things one is to say this podcast is the first one on the new microphones which my patreon subscribers uh if you have been giving t money to me on Patreon, you've been giving money towards these microphones, you've been giving money towards the hosting costs, and you've been giving money towards buying tea for my guests. Thank you. This is, I hope, better audio quality, given that I now have nice microphones and my Zoom recorder and your support. So if you don't already give on Patreon, consider doing that. I will just keep putting it back into the podcast and making this better. Uh, if you don't want to give money, that's okay. Maybe uh, leave a nice review or, an, or a horrible review with five stars on it. I don't think they read the reviews. I think they just check the stars or, or recommend it to a friend who you think would like this podcast. I know it's not for everyone, but for the people it is for, it is for them. You, <laughs> I assume. The, the second thing I wanted to do uh, is give you an update on Dean, who I spoke with last week on the night before his operation operation where he had both a risk of choking and his voice cut out so we had a chat about that and I promised you an update on how he was he promised to write a blog post and I promised to read it which is what I will do now uh, if you are not interested or it's too much for you I had a, a conversation with a friend who recovered from um, throat cancer so he didn't he couldn't listen to the podcast beyond a certain point or in a certain mood uh, maybe skip ahead about four minutes and you'll get into the meat of the podcast. Otherwise, listen on and then we will go to the conversation that I had with Tiff. So Monday, May 30th, 2016. Dean has written, It's a damp Tuesday morning and I sit here in the study, my mind swirling. When I woke from my otherwise broken sleep at 6.30 this morning, the first thing I did was prepare my morning cocktail of medications. I'm currently on a regimen of painkillers including Celebrex, Tramadol, Panadol, an anti-inflammatory called dexamethasone, a drug to prevent bleeding called tranexamic acid, an antibiotic called amoxicillin and an antiseptic mouthwash called Diflam. Oh, side note, Dean, I'm allergic to amoxicillin. It gives me a rash. Uh, to return to the blog post, uh, throughout the day I have to dose these out, interchanging the pain tablets with the others so I can get a balance of effect that lasts. Remember that scene in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, when Terence Stamp's Ralph sat preparing his morning hormone pills by simply tipping them into a breakfast bowl and pouring milk over them? Yeah, that. The downside of all of this is that it sends me loopy. My head is spinning, my balance is shot, and my mind is foggy. Oh, and I'm having some awesome hallucinations. It's either that or endure a constant feeling of razor blades slicing at the back of my throat. I'm also experiencing a neuralgic pain that shoots up into my ears from either side of my jaw. I have to time the taking of these painkillers right so the analgesic effect kicks in before I even contemplate eating anything. Eating. Everything I'm eating presently is either soft or pureed, which isn't actually as bad as it sounds. When I was in hospital, they brought me a little tub of pureed apple on my breakfast tray, which actually tasted really nice. So when I came home and Emily asked me what I'd like from the shops, I made sure to write that one down. I've started pairing it with some Greek yogurt, and for the time being, it's a little treat to myself. I look forward to that one. I'm also sharpening my vegetable soup making skills. A soup pack from the shops containing a couple of carrots, celery and onion, a turnip, a parsnip, a sweet potato costs like a couple of dollars. I add to that half a buttoned up pumpkin and slow cook the lot in some stock until it's ready to be zipped into a puree. At the moment, I love this soup, but I fear I may tire of it quickly. I can drink cold tea, a Twinings Earl Grey. It's a bit pedestrian, but even cold, it's okay. Uh, Dean, another side note, uh, try Lady Grey, it's good, uh, with brown sugar. Back to the blog. 
My swallowing function, while it's affected by the post-operative swelling and inflammation, is serviceable, so long as I don't have anything remotely solid. I tried some banana yesterday. It sent my throat into a spasm. It had my eyes bulging out of my head. I can't speak. My voice has been reduced to barely functional whisper, and when I've tested it, it bloody hurts. I knew this was going to be the case, but now that the reality has set in, so has my depression. Trying to communicate with my family has proved challenging, with me trying some rudimentary signing for obvious things and mouthing words in the hope that they'll understand me. It works about 50% of the time, but it's been bloody frustrating. So I'm here alone in the house, trying to keep my mind busy with reading and counting down the time to my next lot of painkillers. I have plenty of movies and a PS4. I watched Deadpool yesterday. What a piece of shit that was. Two hours of my life I won't get back. Gaming is good for short periods, but the games send me even more loopy and they make me feel sick. In all of this, there may be some light to look forward to. The surgery went very well, very well, in fact. And the surgeon had to remove the bone from my voice box. Sorry. And while the surgeon had to remove the bone from my voice box, as was planned, he was able to preserve the anchor point between that bone and the right-hand vocal cord. It's in a precarious state right now so I'm forced to rest it completely, at least until the healing process is complete. So there's a chance I can salvage some of my voice. A little one, but I'll take that right now. Dean. So that was Dean. That's his update. I'll keep you guys in the loop. Keep sending Dean messages. He's online, and uh, I'm also online. Thank you, everyone, who's been sending me nice messages uh, on email and Twitter and, and on my Patreon messaging service. You guys are lovely. Thank you for listening. I feel like I should amp you back up for the conversation I had with Tiff, which was a lot of fun. Talked about some really interesting industry things and uh, on, on, on a sort of a getting things done scale, her policy and her discipline for doing that. And, and I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks. You're having tea with Anna. Uh, uh, yeah, so you're the first person using these new microphones. I hope that's. I hope that is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's, it's pristine. Oh, it's like a short crust pastry mm. with oh. kind of a. Mm. Not kosher. No. <laughs> Should I've warned you of that before? No. Mm. I'm not kosher. Uh, mm. Great audio. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Keep all of this in. I will definitely not cut any of this <laughs> out. <laughs> well, I remember we had that conversation in the loft where the audio was too fuzzy to use. And that was an interesting one, but I can't remember what it was about. Women in comedy, um, but from a very particular angle. Right. That you're very supportive of. Us. Oh, well, thanks. And yourself. But you know what I mean? In a way that a lot of women who say they're s- supportive are not. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very much to, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, of going, oh, yeah, of course I support women in comedy. And then I thought, well, do I? Like, do I put women forward for gigs? Do I give them opportunities? Do I, you know, all of those Talk things. Talk them up. Talk them up. Talking them up. That's the, that is the big thing that you do that most people don't do. And I think just in the whole industry, that's something that's very rare because it feels so risky. It feels yeah. like, well, if I talk them up and they're more successful than me, like that's the fear. Yeah, and I think that's irrespective of gender. I think everyone has that a little bit. Because I remember sort of doing my tour, doing my first proper tour at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And there were a few people who kind of really shouted about it. And I was really appreciative of it. Like Jason Manford was one. I was like, because not everyone does it. Not everyone plugs and goes, hey, like obviously my friend Roisin Connerty did. And she's brilliant and she's so funny and brilliantly successful as well. You know, so she doesn't feel like it's... Some people feel like to hold someone else up somehow takes away from them. And I don't think that's true. I think we all have to, you know, there's the saying, and I think Lena Dunham says it in her book as well, but, you know, like a rising tide lifts all boats. And Sarah Silverman has said it before in interviews, you know, of things of like, if we shine a light on other women, I promise only good can come of it. It's never been to me advantageous or an exciting thing to say. You're the only woman doing it. Well, also the idea that we're in competition with one another when there's so much space on the ground. Like, 
until it's 50% women on every lineup, yeah, we're and not on squeezed. TV shows. Yeah. That we're not each other's competition. The guys are our competition until until then, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Those are the people who you're if you if you're competing for a spot, those are the people you're competing with. It's really interesting because I remember when the rule came in in the UK about one woman per panel show. I was actually in Australia at the time. Um, so I was sort of watching it from afar. Mm. Um, and an interesting thing happened, you know, with some of the male comics, you know, uh, some of whom are friends, you know, it was this sort of circular conversation that happened that was like, oh, of course, we're really happy that they've done this for you, but it just means I've got even less shot of getting on it now. And these were guys who weren't getting booked for these sort of shows before who somehow now thought that by having one woman on it, that they were going to be edged out, which is so crazy. <laughs> it's like, no, think of the young guys who are coming through, who maybe, you, you know, might be taking your spot or someone who's got, um, maybe someone who's better. Think about that. Mm. They might be a better comic than you. They might have a better agent than you. They may do it in a different style or a way that is more suited to that show or format. There's plenty of reasons why you might not get... It could be because you're, like, one of ten people who does exactly the same thing. If you're, like, quite a sort of middle-class, middle-aged man who is white, know that that's pretty much covered. So unless you're one of the best in the world doing it, then (laughs) you're not going to get the gig. And I'm certainly not taking it away from you. And so when new girls come through... You know, Joan Rivers had a quite interesting thing about it. They were like, how do you feel about other women? She was like, I'm not out of the game yet. So there is that. There is like, yes, great. New girls come through. More new girls, more brilliant girls. And if I want to stay doing the things, then I have to up my game and make sure that I'm the best. Yeah, that's the whole, the fear of the immigrant coming to take your job. Mm. If How bad are you? <laughs> like, how bad are you at your job? Mm. Get better at your job. Yeah. Yeah. D- don't don't uh yeah that's that weird thing of like oh I, i'm so comfortable being shit and a hatred of diversity for diversity's sake well listen there's a way you know television isn't massively fair in the first place but also it has a duty of care or responsibility to be representative of the population how people get picked from there on in is is also, you know, it's not necessarily fair. It's not necessarily right the way it's done. There are plenty of really, really talented people who don't get on shows, you know, that happens. However, to think that, you know, some kind of positive discrimination is going to prevent you or kind of going, oh, well, you know, they, and I've heard this sentence, well, they have to have a brown person on, don't they? So I suppose, you know. Yeah, kind but of like I mean, <laughs> give them the <laughs> advice that was given to us and is consistently given to us and is still given to us. And I think at every time I come up against a wall is just be undeniably good. Once you are, there's a point where they can't deny how good you are. And I think that's why there's a sort of raft of really amazing women coming through at the moment. Because and you out had there. to be undeniable. Because you had to be undeniably good. You've been held back. You've not got the opportunities until three or four years after the guys. And still, even at the top end with women who are at the top of the game here, they still don't get equal opportunities to the men that are at the top of the game. So, you know, there's still fights. There's still fights to be won. And there's still, we're still not near it. I mean, we're, we're sort of getting, you know, one. There can't be shows now on the BBC, certainly. There can't be shows now without at least one woman. Yeah, that but also my worry is that at least one becomes at most one. Yeah, because it I becomes saw the minimum, yeah. I ran a gig very briefly in Sydney and the reason I stopped running the gig was because I said when we started the gig, we need at least one woman per show. And then a couple of weeks later... Well, we've got you. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of weeks later, I said someone had to drop out and I said, oh, how about Zoe? And he said, oh, no, we've got Alex on the show already. We've already got a girl on the show. Wow. And it was just that I was out. I I couldn't work. (laughs) <laughs> in that like yeah uh, I was like, well, you oh. saw old rope last night we had who did we have on last night so i was hosting we had beck hill uh tanya edwards and james acaster that was the first half and i brought james on i was like listen i've got a guy on the bill like everyone says you know <laughs> that we have to have a guy but they're just not out there if they were out there i would book them which is what you hear all the time from the clubs and you know TV, just it, like if, if funny women were out there, we would book them. We've tried, we've really looked 
but we haven't. Here's a list of 100 names that you could choose from, you know. Um, yeah. So we kind of sent that up and then James was very funny, he came on stage and went, just for once I'd like to come on stage without someone mentioning my gender, <laughs> you know. And then the second half was um, yourself, Eleanor Tin and, and Sean Patton. Yeah. And, you know, that's... That's it a was, great night. It was a great night. The women outnumbered the men, and and there, but there weren't. I hadn't I mean, tried to book it. There that were way. no comedians that were the same as any other of the comedians on the bill. Like no. the, the 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 fear of lack of diversity, like there wasn't. Like no, everyone was so different. And Tony Law as well was the other one. So you had a very surreal guy, uh, uh, James and Sean, very different in, in terms of style. You and me, very different in terms of style. Uh, Eleanor again different to us different to Tanya different to Beck everyone yeah and that idea that you could have subbed any one of us in to be the woman on the show and that we would have performed the same role is yeah. insane because yeah. none of us we do such different things and then when you become the woman on the show you become all women as well that's the other hard thing if you're the female representative you're not just there representing yourself which is what it should be as a comic you're there to kind of go these are my thoughts these are my ideas this is what I think about the, the world I then all of a sudden become representative for all women. Yeah. You know, and there have been a few times where I've, I've done shows with other women. I, you know, I've done shows with Catherine. And it's just really nice because I'm like, oh, Catherine's my friend. They're, and we have a different dynamic to what I might have with the boys. Now, this, and that's is, interesting. this is a thing that's happening more. And, and it's an interesting thing, which is the more of us there are, the more you get the late night tap on the shoulder. Watch out for that guy. Right, right. Oh, okay, right. Which you would have had to find out yourself before. Yes, yeah. And and just, I noticed it in Melbourne this year of girls, girl comedians hanging out a lot more than I've ever seen it before. It used to be sort of one girl per group distribu distribution. Yeah. And now there's girls hanging out. And then you have those conversations where you, you hear someone go, oh, don't, you know, watch out for... Dave, he tried to fill me up in, al in an alleyway, and the other one goes, "Oh, Dave, he did that to me." And everyone <laughs> goes, "Oh my God, Dave!" Yeah. Ah, and 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 you don't know that if you're not talking because you're always at a separate gig. Yeah, like you yeah, know, if you never see one another, <laughs> to have a sense of community and support for each other, and on the those sort of rare occasions where you do do gigs where you're all together, like we were the other night, and I think I did a uh, a show that Deborah Francis White has got sort of a podcast, and that was all women maybe one guy um, that you have, you kind of sit around afterwards and you go, oh yeah, of course, this is what it's like all the time for guys. Yeah. yeah and, and look how lovely so it is. And look how fun it is. And no wonder they stay on longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I sort of try to, you know, I try and get people through Old Rope and I'm a bit, of, you know, sometimes, and because I'm sort of so busy, I don't maybe get as many new people through as I want. And then sometimes people sort of, I got into a bit of a situation with one comic who should remain nameless, who really sort of hassled me to get on and was quite aggressive about it. It was a guy. And then I was like, I was sort of like, but I don't have to book anyone. It's my gig. I'm under no, I don't have to do anything. So I can just fill it up with acts that I know and love who do it every week. Mm. Um, but if I am going to push new people through, it tends to be more women so that they because can get that. Because it's your room. Because it's my room and I want it to have that, I want it to feel, so I'd rather push a newer girl through than one of the guys, you know. And, and, and this guy was just so pushy and so shitty and then sent me a series of like shitty DMs, um, you know, kicking off over the fact that I hadn't booked him on the show. That's that's um, a weird entitlement. Yeah, and also it's just it's the room. The Given room there's 150 people in the room who are not on the stage. Yeah, and I'm not. Listen, it's a room that's a new material room, and that's what it is. You know, it's it's um, it's there so that myself and and my peers can work through stuff, write stuff for Edinburgh, try out stuff maybe for TV shows, and have that and have a room that understands what new material is and how that works. And the and distinction between a new material night and an open mic night yeah, is that and there's to no trust progression. someone to do new material, you need to trust them as a performer. Yeah, so you can't really have new acts in the same way because, yeah, the risk is in the material, not the performer. So you can't have new acts, really. Like, you can have newer acts, but you can't get new, new people. And, um, but also, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really busy. <laughs> so I just sort of, there are people who do it regularly. Like Rich Hall does it every week. Milton Jones pretty much every week. Um, you know, if Ashling B's in town, she'll do it most weeks. Catherine Ryan, you know, people 
Or I go, oh, I've got like James Acaster, Nish Kumar. These are people who regularly do the nights, Eleanor Tiernan. So I can put the bills pretty much, you know, five to six acts full every week anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's the function of it is to have that where people can step up. So, and I understand that it's seen as like this, a gig that, p that it has a kudos attached to it. I sort of get that. But that's, that's what happens when something is consistently good. Yeah, well, that's the, and that, and that's nice to know. And we, I, you know, we've been doing it for years, for a long, long time. But uh, like I say, you know, kind of aggressing, aggressively pestering me, then being abusive to me, <laughs> and I don't respond is not the way to get on, really. You know, uh, so like I say, I'd like to make that if I'm getting newer acts, it's probably more likely that's going to be women, just because they're not getting the same amount of opportunity because they aren't being pushed through at other clubs. So, yeah, the, it's it's amazing how quickly people turn from like begging or asking something of you to being really mean yeah like you see it on sort of online sort of shaming things like by F felicia or whatever where it yeah, is yeah where somebody will go hey you're really beautiful and then she hasn't replied within 10 minutes and he's like dumb fat whore like that happens where sh she's literally put no input in well look at that message i got last night there was so i just today got a message on my facebook wall which I will read out to you. I'm going to find it on my Twitter But it's here. such an unusual thing. Well, such uh, a defensive thing to go from begging to rage. To rage. Well, this guy, this will give you a perfect example. And I'm never rude to fans and I'm never rude to my punters at Old Road. But yesterday on my wall, I got this. And I, I remember a guy sort of sliding up to me at the bar and trying to talk to me when an act was on. And I got, I was like, yeah, shh, I'll talk to you in the break. That was literally the limit of the conversation. He was kind of, and what I got before that was, do you not recognize me from my avatar? I've been your Facebook fan for years. That was sort of what I got. And then he left a message this morning on my Facebook page going, a comedy club is not a fucking library. Do not shush me. The people ordering drinks at the Phoenix bar were, where I was trying to have polite word with you were louder than I was. I left out of sheer boredom anyways, dot, dot, dot. Just like a yeah. teenager slamming their, you know, that kind turn, of going. I left out of boredom anyway. That's the like, he asked you to pay attention to him. You said no. And then he's just immediately abusive, like immediately, your show's boring. Yeah. Despite the fact that he clearly your likes shit. you, <laughs> yeah. wanted to talk to you. And, and now it, it, that rage and, and it's such a weird thing. It's like th an anger that they wanted something from you. Yeah. That they felt entitled to something from you and didn't get it. And so then they have to com immediately say, well, it, you're not worth anything anyway. I didn't want it anyway. Well, my reply to it was, my comedy club is a place where I respect the acts who are on stage, who I book in my room. If you want to talk to me, you could have done before the show or in the interval, like plenty of other people do. I've never met you before, have no idea who you are, and this message is fucking unbelievably rude. I just think, <laughs> I, could just I like that the idea that he thinks the only place that you could get shushed is a library. A library. Been to the yeah. ballet, like <laughs> yeah. the, any other show. Well, someone else, uh, my friend Roisin replied with that, and someone else replied with, I bet he's the kind of guy that gets his mobile phone out at the cinema. <laughs> Which is exactly that. Like, it, and it's because I... I'm not spurned your advances, but you were like a puppy sitting up for my attention and I went, not now. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that happens increasingly with your visibility. Sometimes people will come to see you live, you know, for people who've seen me in the sitcom that I'm on and then try to talk to me. Yeah. Sort of as if I'm on telly. Yeah. Playing that character. And sometimes people don't understand the difference. That there's a difference. And I've seen it sort of happen to Dara O'Brien. I saw someone in the loft bar, this was last year, and I was in the middle of a conversation with Dara, you know, who's a friend who I do mock the week with. And this man come over and went, you were really fucking rude to my wife. And Dara just sort of edged away from him. He was like, did you hear me? You, she's such a fan of yours. You were really rude to her. And he was like, he turned around and he was like, no, you're rude. This is my friend right now who I'm talking to, who I've known for a long time. I come to this fringe. I see my f my friends who I've known for years. How dare you just like barge in in the middle of our conversation like that. And then the wife come over and she was like, I was crying. You were so rude to me. And again, it was, she'd interrupted him yeah. in a conversation with someone else. And so that some people, I guess, have a sense of entitlement that somehow they own you because they're a fan or they like you. And that's exactly what this guy had done here. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is, I would have spoken to him. There's so many people at Old Rope that will come and talk to me after the show. Yeah. And I've got time for. I just, 
I, you know, I want the respect when I'm on stage of people not talking. I do it to the acts. I tell the acts to shut up at the bar. Yeah. Regularly. Yeah. If they're talking, I'm like, guys, shh. Yeah, and I'm I police the room. Most rooms do that. Most comedy rooms do that. And some often it is the acts up the back who are chatting because they've seen the material before or whatever. They're seeing their friend who they haven't seen for a while because you haven't gigged together for a while. That's often the case. It's not an unusual thing. I, I, I find it weird that he's characterised it as an unusual thing to be shushed in a show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly by the organizer of the show who has the right to do that. Like, you're normally shushed by the guy behind you who wants to see the show. Like, that's not an unusual... Yeah. That he, that he felt outraged by something that happens literally almost every show that exists. Yeah. There's someone who's talking a bit loudly and someone goes, shh, and they go, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like... Yeah, and they work it out. No, we had a guy who was turning up who was sort of into the show but would turn up super drunk and on his own. And we had to turf him out a couple of times one time he vomited upstairs i mean we normally don't attract that sort of crowd to be honest but there are plenty well, of Monday night. there are plenty of people who come to that show who've been to see my edinburgh shows who've been to see me at tv records and stuff like that and they just they know how to behave as an audience why don't you why do you think that you're special yeah i, d I don't i don't know the answer to that yeah uh, I, I was talking about my kind of kryptonite demographic the other day um, oh okay with my friend laura davis who's sort of s not similar in style but we're in the same school of comedy we sort of have a similar thing where we deal with sort of similar issues and art comedy yeah push that boundary and she her show this year she had uh, a blindfold on and she starts talking about things like sex or you know rape culture and and there would be always or usually or often enough somebody in the audience who'd go, oh, well, that's a steady on there. And she'd say, with a blindfold on, I'm sorry, are you a man in his mid-50s? And it always was. Not all men in their mid-50s, but all the ones that did it <laughs> yeah. were men in their mid-50s. Yeah. She was completely blindfolded and every time it happened she would get it right because that's what – they do yeah. this yeah. sense of well that's what this guy was and i was like maybe you're socially awkward commentary maybe you're shy i would say he was in his sort of late 40s yeah um, late 40s to mid 50s but uh yeah i like had a tweet yesterday that someone exactly that age bracket disagreed with yeah and went it was a joke about donald trump and he was like is this is this funny though and i was like will you follow me stop following me yeah <laughs> so, or drawing attention to my joke that you don't like yeah because you're just giving it more attention um and someone i was at hay and why festival at the weekend um and one of the things we did was a philosophy debate and it was like are sex drugs and rock and roll the meaning of life and the whole point is the audience does engage in the conversation but there was one guy who i think took particular exception to most things i said got very annoyed when i got a round of applause and someone else went that was really profound. Thank you for that. You know, and I said a thing of like, when you create stuff, you can in your head imagine yourself to be almost godlike. You're creating worlds. He was like, speak for yourself, you know, and he got yeah, really. Yes, I but was. But he was very jowly. I could see his jowl jiggling when he spoke. And I was like, you're exactly the kind of guy that is threatened by me. Yeah. You know, and there is, there is a thing of like being a young woman. The kryptonite <laughs> demographic. They yeah. They cannot let you speak. It, it's too much. Yeah, it's too much to let you speak or have an opinion without their commentary or without their input or without their guidance or without you know their approval or disapproval or whatever it happens to be. It's just a little tap. It's just a reminder. Yeah, of of where you stand in the in the hierarchy of things, which is that you can speak, but they get the right to comment. Yeah, and you know ultimately we get the final, yeah, the final comment or the well, it's l nice that you tried, little girl. But obviously, <laughs> obviously you're wrong. You can hear the scoff in the in the in the voice. Yeah. But yeah, that was bizarre, and it just sort of yeah, it was petty. The rudeness and pettiness of it, and then Mark Watson sort of tweeted me going, "I wouldn't even give that another thought." But other comics were like, "Oh my god, it's the best club and the nicest people." So don't even worry about you it. You can't not give those things another thought because it's somebody being rude to you like yeah I, that's hurtful because i really try and cultivate a nice atmosphere at that gig and it's my room and i don't think i am rude and i don't think i'm dismissive of the audience and like i say after the show we had that girl who came and had a drink with us and 
she'd been to the show the week before and it was her first ever comedy gig. Oh, and she wow. was so sweet, um, Keaton, and she's from America, and she sort of tweeted me going, I thought I was my favorite feminist, but now it's you. And that was really sweet. She's like, I'm back next week. And that was her first ever show, and she loved it. And she came on her own on the second week, and she's like 20-something, yeah. young girl, traveling from L.A., and she had a drink with us afterwards. So that could have been that guy if he hadn't have been such a douche. Yes. If you'd have maybe not been such a needy kind of... Yeah, well, giving something rather than demanding something. Yeah. Like, yeah, hey, I love the show. Oh, sorry, I can't talk now. I'll tell you later how much I love the show. Like, yeah, that's... exactly that. A perfectly acceptable exchange. Yeah. Or, I mean, if he's your fa- Facebook follower, he could write it on Facebook, which is has the virtue of being silent. Oh, you get people asking for photos, you know, and I've happily done that and other acts have happily done that. I'm still at the stage when that happens. I feel starstruck if somebody asks me for a photo. I'm like, oh my God, you want a photo with me? I get like a little bit overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) But you're you're obviously further ahead in the game. Well, uh, uh, some people are like, after my set, I'll happily do it. They don't like doing it before they go on or whatever. But most of the acts are really accommodating Mm. if you ask them, you know. And people sort of shyly, shyly do. And, you know, if you're nice, most people won't say no. Some people might, but most most of them don't. But even if they do say no. That's their right as well. Yeah. You don't have to have a photo taken. You got to watch them do material for a fiver. (laughs) So that was your, that's exactly what you paid for. You got what you, you know. Well, people's job is not to have photographs taken. Yeah. I think if you're a Hollywood star at a certain point, there's a crossover at which it does. Yeah. Your job becomes being publicly available and that's a weird thing and people deal with it badly or better depending on who they are. Yeah. Uh, Or they start talking about themselves in the third person, which is always worrying. Yeah. Tiff Stevenson does that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, at this, I mean, comedians, that's not our job. Our job is not. I mean, I remember when Sarah Millican wore a, sh- a dress to a an awards ceremony and got criticised for the dress uh, because someone said it was frumpy or something. Right, and right. Her response, A, was that's incredibly hurtful and it made me cry. But B, my job isn't to be looked at. Like, my job isn't to be... It's to be heard. Have photos taken of me. It's to say things. Yes, yeah, to make you laugh. And, and, and That's make our you job, laugh. to make you laugh. And <laughs> ideally make you think. But yeah. even then... Like if yeah. you make me, f- if I make you think, but don't make you laugh, I'm not necessarily a comedian. Yeah. If I make you laugh, that's the job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes I do. Also, social media, I guess, opens up that. You know, years ago, you wouldn't even have that as a, a dialogue. He would have just left. Yeah, and sucked at home. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it wouldn't have been a thing. But it's literally the first thing I woke up to this morning, and I was like, oh, fuck off. Yeah, it's because I get up and I write my little journal in the morning as well. You know, I do my have a five minute journal, so that's my routine. And I get up and I so that's my first thing I do in the morning. So I write out my like five things that I'm, and it's really, really for my positive mindset. And I have to do this because I'm a depressive and I'm someone who really, I'm not a depressive. I won't say that actually. Uh, I am someone who's suffered from depression. And there's always the possibility that it may come back. So there's that, you know. Uh, but I definitely try to. Like it's very, very hard to keep even in this game as a human being generally. It's incredibly hard. So one of my positive things to do to set my day up and end my day well is I get up and I write down this list of five things, you know, sort of five things I'm grateful for. And they have to be different every day. And they can be small or big. And then I write a series of affirmations just nice things and then I set my day up with positivity and when I go to bed at night I write down like three or four amazing things that happened today yeah and what I always find is there's way more than three or four yeah and what it does is before you go to sleep it forces you to go through the day and look back on all of those things the positive things that were positive to remind you great things that happened today so you go to bed with that in your head but see i don't have something like that i feel like that would be good for me it's like i've only been doing it maybe about nine months and it's it's and that transformative s- it's such a small thing but it is transformative for me it's one of those things that i imagine like you hear that about that kind of thing and you always slightly cringe away from it because it sounds a bit american or a bit like yeah. hippie-ish Therapy. or a bit woo-woo but yeah as a, as an effective thing to do, it seems like a really obvious one. Yeah, because you see, 
And I see things in other people that I know could way be well be mirrored in me. And often the things that I see that I think are ugly in other people are probably traits that I have my have myself. I see how this is an industry where bitterness will literally cripple you. And it will prevent you from seeing the amazing opportunities that are in front of you. Yeah. And bitterness and, and jealousy are things that are, you're not, but but and, you're they feed into your depression. They're separate things to the depression, but they are, it's, it's another thing that goes, look what you're not doing. Yeah. So it's showing you lack constantly. It makes so you incapable of recognizing what you have achieved. So many people who are making a living out of comedy are upset. Yes. Yeah. About what they don't have. Yeah. And you think, that's... Yeah. That is the brass ring. Well, After if you that, always, gravy. if all, if you always think about what you don't have, you're always going to be unhappy because no one's ever going to have everything. No one's going to ever have everything, and people's there is no way of doing it. There's no prescribed route. There's no specific. Everyone's on a different journey, so stay in your lane. <laughs> stay in your lane. Stop trying to get in the other lanes. And whenever you fear off, or, or I go away, or things aren't working for me, is when I'm trying to get in the other lanes. Yeah. So my my that being transformative is literally five minutes at the beginning of my day and five minutes at the end of my day. And then I go things that I could have done better today and it'll always be like tidy up or go to the gym or get some admin done. And then you'll see ones that are reoccurring and you go, well, that's something I need to deal with Yeah, because I'm not doing that enough. So, you know, or I'll, you know, have five minutes to meditate or whatever. And I don't really meditate. I sometimes listen to tapes and stuff like that. But this is almost like my just my five minutes I bookend the day because I also suffer from what I call nag syndrome which is what I call not as good syndrome uh -huh. <laughs> I'm trying to sort of work this into my stand-up a couple of years ago I had a bit in my show about the uh, inner critic which is the voice in your head that just as you're about to leave your ha your house you catch yourself in the mirror and it sort of goes were you thinking of going out and you're like yeah and they're like don't bother you've got a tiny head everyone's gonna laugh at you you know all of those worst things that you think about yourself all those awful things that's the inner critic and nag is sort of part of that nag is not as good syndrome and it's where you just go on social media and you go oh well not as good as this I, person. I've just booked Montreal Comedy Festival but this person's doing this you know it would never end yeah so you have to find ways to deal with that and switch it off and and th that five minute five minutes is is that's transformative yeah i think the thing in like buddhism there's a thing called sympathetic joy right right and that's one of my one of my favorite things and i i i think i'm okay at it but it's always a really good thing to practice for me because i find myself so much happier in the world if you can be happy when other people are happy. Yeah. Like if you yeah. can be like, oh, I'm so glad that you're happy and really feel it. That's, it makes your world so much better. Because yeah. then when you see other people's happiness, you don't go, well, I'm not happy. You think I'm happy because they're happy. I'm happy and, and they're happy. Like that and sounds we can really simplistic, but it's um, it, for me, that's one of the things that makes me able to deal with all of the ups and downs. Yeah. I definitely think when I, w definitely when I see other people and there are people that I think are really great that don't necessarily think, I think have the careers. I was going to say deserve, but there's a piece of paper next door with a list of things on it that Stuart Black wrote for me in 2014 before I went up to the fringe and it was important things to remember and it was really great and I won't get it and read them all off, you know, because, you know, some of them might have been personal to our friendship, but a couple of them were, you know, like we all have the need for external validation, mm. but, um, you know, inner validation is yours to keep and no one can ever take it away. So, you know, critics, punters, reviewers, whatever, they can give you the validation but what happened, and I've seen this happen to be people who who get off to a flying start, who get lots of heat and success early on, who then find it so difficult to deal with that inevitable drop of when all of a sudden they do a show and people don't give a shit and people are like, well, this is subpar. Yeah, because you can't be getting better forever. Well, the thing is, is if you out of the gate do well, then peop what people are judging you on is like a debut performance almost, like... You know how like you have newcomer in Edinburgh, that second show is hard because what they're saying is that's good for a first go. You showed potential. Now come back and show that you can do something else. Yeah. And then you're going to be judged up against, you're not being judged as a newcomer anymore. You're being judged against everyone that's been doing it 10 years, 12 years, 20 years. You're all of a sudden in a much 
bigger pond. Bigger pond and you're a tiny, much tiny, bigger fish. much bigger fish and you're the tiny fish, you know. So that's quite hard. And so then in some ways I've been lucky and I've, I've been a really slow build and a slow burn. And I, you know, it's not like people are like, I back that, you know, you see people and it, it is really hard. It's really hard when you look around and you go, God, it feels like that person, everyone kind of loves them, even though, you know, like, why don't they love me? You know, why don't I get that? You know, like, oh, it's really, it's not, it's nothing that's useful. So I was going to say, when I see people who I think are really brilliant, who deserve better careers, one of the things Stuart wrote on the piece of paper was there's no such thing as deserve. Yeah. Because it's art. And Roisin Connolly says that quite a lot as well. She's the other person that's, you know, like, deserve to just be sort of banned, <laughs> you know. Um, so there are people who I look at and I think are brilliant, who I think could be doing bigger and better things. And normally when I look at them and what is holding them back and what is crippling them, it is bitterness and anger and jealousy. And I know those are the things that can hold me back if I let them. So I'm very vigilant to That's not let them. smart. That is a smart move. There's a thing called survivorship bias, um, which I'm super fascinated by, which is exactly that, where people look at successful people and think, what are they doing, and try to copy successful people. And this happened in World War One when they were sending out planes, and the planes would come back with bullet holes in them, and so they thought, okay, we need to reinforce the spots with bullet holes in them. And this guy came along and went, no, you want to look at the planes that don't come back you want to look at the plane. So where the bullet holes are, that's fine. You can yeah. shoot a plane there. Where the bullet holes aren't, those are the planes that are not coming back. Right. So yeah. that you look at the spaces. So you look at the failures. Yes. It's important to see the people who you think, and, and particularly talented people, who are not doing, as you say, what they should be or what they could be or what they might be. And then you look at them because they're the ones who are instructive. Yeah. Success is always going to be 50% luck. But failure is not always 50% luck. Yeah, yeah. And I think people can be masters of their own destruction. And I know that if I put my mind to it, I am almost unstoppable as a force. Like if I decide I can make things happen and I will make things happen and I'll do things. So therefore, um, you have to be very careful how you challenge that, uh, about how you challenge channel that energy and time. Yeah, what I'm going to say next is going to sound a little bit sucking uppy. But I've gone, I've made strides in my career since last Edinburgh. And part of it was the Edinburgh thing. And part of it was meeting you. Oh, and just well going, that's good. Oh, I was always afraid to a certain extent. And there is this thing that happens with women where you get punished for pushing. Yeah. And there's a little bit of princess syndrome. If I'm good enough, they'll find me. If I'm good enough, they'll pick me. If I'm good enough, they'll want me. And all I have to do is be good enough. And it's like, no, you can push and you can... You can make things happen. And I, I, that was a really, yeah, an inspiring thing for me, watching you in Edinburgh make things happen. Yeah. It's really good. And oh. I think that any progress I've made in the year has been part of that shift of perspective that I had. Oh, well, that's nice. I will, I will happy. That makes me happy because I, the people that I think are talented are good. I like to see, be recognised for being talented and good. And then I knew you had a really good run in Melbourne. Yeah. So I was like really chuffed and really pleased. I was like, yes. And I saw the show that you had in Edinburgh as well. And I was like, this is such a complex show with going through so much and part comedy and it was beautiful and people really connected to it, you know. And I, that's, actually I would attribute this to Stuart Black, but it's, I would always rather see people strive for greatness with the possibility of failure yeah. than just boot something out there that no one cares about. Yeah, amb ambition, I think, is something that I would like to embrace more. Yeah, to be ambitious with it and go, I'm going to do this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and I'm going to do something exciting and I'm going to... Yeah, I want to... You know, I'm a storyteller. I've got so many... Uh, uh, for me, it's all art. You know, stand-up is, is, is art and stand-up has heavily been my focus for a while. I've always acted in stuff. I so it, what's really interesting is is the things that you sometimes the things that you don't pursue and that you don't chase are the things that come easiest. That's another really interesting lesson to learn because I've sort of I don't want to say I don't give a shit about acting, <laughs> but it's not really 
it's not the, <coughs> the thing. No, thing. It's no, not the, not not the end goal. I I enjoy it, and I really enjoy collaborating with people and the stuff that I work on. I'm really happy and privileged to work on. So I don't want to make that seem like I'm not grateful because I work on really great stuff. But I think half of the job of me landing it is because I don't care what the outcome is. Yeah, it's it's easy. And it's that's a really Buddhist thing. <laughs> it's almost like letting go of consequence. There's a thing of like, there's an old saying about, I think it was about love. If Love is the butterfly that sits on the palm of your hand and it will sit there quite freely. But the minute you try and close your hand, the butterfly will try and escape. Yeah. So there's, it will fly away. So there's a thing about, try not to act out of fear, I guess. Fear and of desperation, yeah. Yeah, and because people, and with acting is so much about the energy that you bring into the room. If you've got your own stuff going on, it's just a, a much more interesting energy. And and also, there are certain things where I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of a bit more choosy. I'm like, do I want to work on that project? Do I want to work with those people? Do I want to go for that audition? Is it something that I want to do? Am I interested in it? You know, um, am I, and I sort of recently had a weird thing in an audition I should tell this in the casting for Woe um, Theatre Show, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I, uh, um, about, probably about three years ago, I haven't done commercials for years. And I used to do them as an actor. Great way to get money. Stuff that I used or agreed with or bought. I'd quite happily do an advert for it. Um, <coughs> about three years ago, my agent sort of put me up for a commercial. And... So it was three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago. And I was like, do I, I, I don't really want to do commercials. Um, so, and, and it's so weird because here it's such a taboo thing for comedians. It's a really, you know, the last one I did was. Seen as sort of selling out in a way or. Yeah. Compromising because yeah. what you're selling is your honest. Well, there's a point where you're, for me, it was fine when I was an actor for hire. I was gun for hire. And now I am Tiff Stevenson, the comedian. Yeah, so you're not and performing something, yeah, you're representing I am a something. Yeah, I'm representing. I then become a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Ambassador? Yeah, almost like a representative of a spokesperson. Yeah. And I, you know, that's a very different thing. And there was a, there was a definite turning point. I did an IKEA commercial like six years ago, maybe. Mm. Five years ago. And at the same time, I'd done the TV show, Show Me the Funny Here, which was like a TV series on ITV, which was like a ch kind of like a last comic standing, which was the sort of the show that I got into the final of. And I've been doing TV as an actress, but I wasn't really doing any telly as a comic. Anyway, so the same year, I just before I got that, I did this commercial where I was acting for hire. And it was for Ikea. But it was this weird thing. It almost looked like it was a sitcom. And it was like men versus women and messiness and tidiness. And then how it all came about was we, we auditioned. I wrote my own stuff for the audition. Then when we went into the workshops, they were like, we'll workshop stuff, we'll write stuff with you, we'll workshop stuff. And then the advertising agencies, who are not the most scrupulous of people at the best of times, uh, kept trying to get one of the guys to do Michael McIntyre's man draw routine. And like there were two writers there who also, they were like, what are you doing? So they kept going, well, so maybe something about a man draw? And I was like, that's, that's Michael McIntyre's routine. You can't put that in the commercial. They were like, yeah, but just maybe something like... And we were like, no. And then, actually, what was quite good is that they then started sort of pitching... The advertisers they started sort of pitching ideas that I just found objectionable. So I would just go, yeah, Ed Byrne does a routine on that. So we won't, we can't do it. Sarah Millican does... <laughs> I just started making it up. Just I was like, I don't want to do it. There was one about, like, stacks of CDs on the floor and, like... Every time I walk through it, it's like a council estate. I feel like I'm going to get stabbed. And I was like, oh, it's just a really crap classist joke, guys. You know, but I didn't say that. I just went, Ed Byrne has a routine on that. So anyway, we end up doing this commercial. We end up like coming up with bits of material. We do it on the show. I end up writing a bit for one of the guys who's sc Scottish in it. Like we, we, you know, we and we sort of helped each other write bits. And that was fine. We were just actors in the commercial. Then they did a whole online campaign. And then there was a thread on Mumsnet by them kind of going, do you agree with Tiff Stevenson that men are messier than women? And I was like, well, hold on. Now I'm not an actor in this commercial. My name's not used in the commercial. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I'm a representative. I'm a personality. I'm a, And that's a different thing. And you'd have to pay me a hell of a lot more money. 
my, I will not sell out my principles that cheaply. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not for that money. Um, so, so I became aware at that point, I can't do any more commercials and sh show me the funny came out and I was like, right. Okay. And so then about three years ago, I went, maybe I'll do, you know, maybe if it's something, if it's funny, if it's cool, if it's good, you know, we'll see. So I went up for this commercial and it was the first time I felt like, um, I'd felt in the room that someone was threatened by the alphaness of me being a stand-up comic. Oh. Not necessarily me being alpha. But the fact of you being a stand-up comic as a threat. Yeah, I, I have a friend who's on Tinder and she said she stopped mentioning that she's a comedian because it's it's threatening to some people. Well, I knew this person, like, had seen me on Mock the Week. So it was, it was really weird. The director was a guy... And they were like, he's a comedy director, but I couldn't really find any comedy that he'd done. Mm -hmm. So I sort of went into the room and we went in and I was really happy. And I was with this girl and she was about 20 something, like maybe 21, 22, very tall, blonde and pretty. And we sort of went in, did our eye dents. And he was like, right, go. So we did it. And then he stopped us. And he was like, no, 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 that's shit. Literally like this. He was like, that's not how you, how could you think that's what, uh, what, you know, what was on the script? And this girl next to me is sort of trembling. And I went, well, how about you give us some direction then? Yeah. You give us some direction, we'll do it differently. And he was like, you need to do it this way. Is that a problem? And I was like, no, it's not a problem. He was like, because you look like you have a problem. And I was like, mate, I don't have a problem. It's a commercial casting. Let's just do it and I'm leaving. <laughs> like literally. So we did the thing again. He was like, no, that's not right. It was really rude. As I left, they went, you haven't signed your release form. I went, I'm not signing my release form. I'm not doing this piece of shit commercial. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> I rang up my agent and I was like, no more commercials. He was unbelievably rude. Yeah. Um, But... I was sort of outside, I walked out, this girl was there, she was sort of shaking on the brink of tears, which is what he made her do in the commercial casting. And I just went, never let anyone speak to you like that. Never let anyone treat you like that in an audition because that's unacceptable behavior. And she was like, oh, I, I'm so glad you said something because I felt like, and she was choking and then she went, I know you by the way. And I was like, oh yeah, she went, you're a comedian. I saw you at the comedy store. like. And then in, in that moment, I was so glad that I had said something. Because imagine if... Yeah, imagine if you'd both been... Imagine if we'd both been like that. And she went, oh, there's this powerful, successful woman who I've seen do comedy at the comedy store. And she walked out of a room destroyed by some awful man. Yeah. Petty. For no reason. Like, I had no idea why he treated me like that. Apart from he was threatened by the fact that I did stand up. It was the weirdest thing. And that's not normally how it goes down. I've met tons of brilliant producers and directors well, I mean, and work with them. It's also not the way it goes down because it's a really terrible way to get anything good out of anybody, performance-wise. Yeah. Like, you just but also, it's like I've noted your name. It's in my book, my friend. <laughs> like, good luck in about ten years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were we talking about this before <laughs> we started recording, and uh, we won't name names, but there's an assumption that people make when they treat you badly, mm. particularly early on in your career, that you will never be above them or in a position to do them a favour. Yeah. And I feel like that's a dangerous assumption to make. Of course it is. Just, it doesn't matter where anyone is in the in the hierarchy, you know. It's the little people, who th where they're little now, and it could be the runner on set, it could be uh, the sound assistant, it could be the personal reception in an office. You just don't know where they're going to be, and you should want to be decent to people. Well, I mean, yeah, first of all, you should be nice to people because you want to be nice to people, but even if you're a, if you, if you're a complete sociopath, yeah, you would, don't be, like, it's not good politics, it's not good... It's just not a good idea. Like, it's a really dumb idea. The momentary satisfaction you get from being mean to somebody, if you get satisfaction from being mean to somebody, is going to be outweighed by the well fact I that, you know, you're going to show up at your new boyfriend's Christmas dinner and they'll be his sister. Like, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Well, there's, there's, um, 
that was the other thing as well that I sort of with that girl I was like I remember being that age and I remember thinking if you were rude to someone or you spoke up that you were never going to get booked for a job and I think there's a great line in if you watch Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt yes oh so good so the very first episode of that where the mole women came come out and they're on a tv show and they're being interviewed and the character of Cindy he says how did you get kidnapped and she went well he took the reverend Gary Wayne Gary turned up uh, at my school and he said he had some rabbits in the van and did I want to come and look at them and you know so I didn't want to appear rude <laughs> then the guy goes I'm always amazed at the lengths that women will go to to not appear rude <laughs> or the things women will go through to not appear rude and it's, it's a really dark joke in the show it's just like this guy kidnaps you you don't want to you didn't no, want to be he's rude. asked me to look at rabbits in the back in the back of his blacked out van. Obviously, obviously, I can't be rude, but there is something in that. There is something in our inherent. Whereas guys, are just fuck off. Yeah, not interested. Thank you. You can be polite and rude. I mean, that's the thing about the level of 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 what we consider to be rude is sometimes just saying no or making somebody feel uncomfortable for a moment, even if you're being polite. Well, this guy was like, "Is there a problem?" And I was like, no, like what, do, do you want to have a fight with me? Is that what you want? I don't understand what's happening here. I don't understand. Were you forced to see me for this? You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't oh. want this job. I don't want to work with you. And so, again, I was like, yeah, guys, yep, yeah, I was right the first time. I'm not doing commercials anymore, you know. Hopefully. And, yeah. It's not like you need more work. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was just, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm glad that I stuck to my guns. But you don't always, you know, and you learn to. And uh, this is something we're sort of talking about in Casting Call Woe, which is a, a project that my, a friend of mine, but she runs an account called Pro Resting. And it's kind of about horrific sexist casting calls. Um, and... Um, we're doing a, a live stage show based on that. So all of the awful casting breakdowns that you see for things like she's past her prime, age 23 to 30, looking for actress with good-sized boobs to play sexy nun. <laughs> and during that, people come on and tell their awful audition stories or casting stories. So I've, you know, seen some absolute titans of the business come on and tell Amazing. fascinating stories. And there's something really cathartic about opening up and going, these aren't unique experiences and that's why we should call them out. Yeah, where you start to see trends, as you say, with, like with your journaling things. If you see a couple of those next to each other, you start to go, oh, this is something that needs fixing. And it's the same, I mean, I'm drawing a thread through this whole podcast now of, of the women behind when you finally get together it, backstage at a comedy gig and there's more than two of you, you start going, oh, there's some... Oh, there's some repeat offenders here. There's some things that keep happening that point to bigger problems. Yeah. That person's a misogynist and no one's saying it. Let's point that out. Yeah. You know, that person um, is racist. Let's point that out, you know. Yeah. That person's homophobic. Let's, you know. Yeah, and it's one hilarious story and then someone else's slightly less hilarious story and then you're like, oh, this is... Yeah, we're always trying to top trump each other with like, I've got a more awful one than that. But it's it, it's really it's really important to have those discussions. But like I say, I feel like and casting call woe is about kind of like putting women up by laughing. If we didn't laugh at these, we would cry at them. That's the point. And so I feel like by challenging them, putting them out there, we're kind of saying make it better, make it better, get more women everywhere, get more uh, female directors in, top to bottom, more female producers. Then we start getting the stories for women, and that's how we change it. Yeah, you know, and hopefully make some money to then put into films of our own and stuff of our own where we can start producing and and driving the content because it's still we're still not there and it it kind of I have to you know there's a point where you almost have to like actively switch off from it because then you have to be selfish and progress your own career where you yeah. go I can only fight for so long and for so and I'll come back to it and then I'll have another fight yeah. but then I got to do six months of going away and going this is my work, irrespective yeah. of my gender. It's yeah. a conflict that guys don't have to face. No, because you're not just... Uh, guys, you're fighting for your own career and you're rarely fighting for everyone else with your own career, that you represent everyone and that 
your success is, you know, you're in a jungle and you're the first one and you're making a track for other people to come along. Yeah. You guys are just walking the track. Yeah, yeah. You've just got – someone's been through there with a scythe. <laughs> They've literally hacked through. You know the shape of success. You know the pr- path to success. You know, you know you're never going to be taken out for three years to have a kid. Like yeah. You're yeah. never going to have that snake wrapped around your knees or whatever. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. You're never going to have that point in your career where you feel like, does this person want to help me or do they want something else? Yes. You know, that that's part of it as well. You know, I think, which, yeah, which is why it's, it's why it's so important that women talk to each other and we, we have a dialogue and we have access to information. Information is important. And that goes for all of the areas, you know, sort of money and stuff like the the big pay thing in Hollywood now of like kind of speaking out, you know, and kind of going and guys supporting that guys supporting those conversations and then also saying about other guys who are the misogynists to kind of go, that's not cool what you're doing. Yeah. When people get offended at the truth, like people who get really upset when girls repost men's unsolicited dick pics. Yeah. <laughs> 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 They're never solicited. <laughs> They're never solicited. They're only ever unsolicited. I've I've decided I want to write a bit that like redeems dick pics. Like I need to find an argument for them because there has to be a reason. I just can't see it. Oh, I don't know. Did you see that I bit I did last night? No. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the bit about um for that me was what made me think that I had to write one that was like <laughs> a, a pro a pro dick pic. Just because otherwise I don't understand it. Well, that's yeah. I mean, m- yeah, my bit's sort of about the the idea that I don't understand why guys send them because women don't look at that and go, oh, that's nice. I'm hopping on that no matter what it's attached to. Like for us, we don't date the dick. <laughs> don't <laughs> send us a picture of the dick. You I know. I feel like I feel like there's something in it that is like, if you could argue for it, it's. It's a really vulnerable thing. Like maybe it's just like trying to express. No, I'm, no. <laughs> <laughs> it can't. It can't be vulnerable unless it's flaccid. Yes, that's when it's a vulnerable thing. So if men sent you a picture of their flaccid penis, then it would be a vulnerable that's thing. That's a really sweet thing. So let's. Is that this what we're making like, an argument here's for? My, here's my snail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you like to go out on a date? But yeah. you know, again, it's kind of like sending a picture of his, you know, like, would we want to send our pictures of our body parts when they didn't look our best? But men view women in those terms. They can almost separate, they can almost objectify us from body part to body part. And I don't think women do, I think we look at a man and we go, is that package the man that that I I want? Yeah, and I've, I've noticed this when people talk to you like in New York, it happens. In sort of dating-heavy places, it happens where people talk to you impatiently, like you're some idiot who's in the way of pussy. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, you, they're, they're connected. Like you can't just get me out of the way. <laughs> yeah, so you like could have like access to my vagina. You can't you have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's all part of the same piece. You've you got to entertain this bit up here. Yeah, out of the way. Like, and that sense of sort of entitlement again, and impatience that like that you're you're blocking something or you're just you know no no time wasters no tire kickers no nobody who just wants to have a conversation <laughs> yeah as if like that's so revolting who wants to do that in this modern age of swiping left or right swiping left or right yeah the art of conversation diminished oh that's just like minty cold drink now oh that mint tea Iced mint tea. Yeah. Have, have you invented a new drink? I have, yeah. I don't know if it's even ice. I think it's just like room temperature. <laughs> tepid, tepid mint tea. And tepid Mel- is Marlboro. not a good advertising one. <laughs> no, no. Because this is tepid, tepid comedy. <laughs> room temperature comedy. Room temperature comedy would be a good name for a gig. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because room temperature is the perfect temperature, right? It's the perfect temperature for tea or comedy <laughs> just not tepid what are you doing at the moment and where can people find you online oh okay yeah how long have we been talking oh nearly an hour oh cool um was that did we, did we talk about good things we talked about good we things about good things i feel happy that we talked good. about good things and we drew the line through about um about uh, talking about things yeah 
<laughs> we should talk more about talking about things. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> about the power of talking about things. We should talk about the power of talking about things. And a bit about positivity. And how, But just the putting things out in the open lets you see these patterns. Yeah. That everyone, you know, the creaky stair syndrome. Everyone knows that guy's yeah. a rapist. Yeah. Let's walk around him. Or what about fixing the yeah. problem, getting <laughs> rid of him, getting another... Yeah, put someone non-rapist <laughs> into, the, into the scenario. Um, yeah, what am I doing? So I am going to be... I don't know where your listeners are based, all over. Uh, all over. I've got uh, mainly America and Australia. I've okay. got a few UK listeners, but it's mainly America and Australia. Uh, so... Um, so in America, well, I'll be at Montreal, so that's Canada, I'll be at Montreal Comedy Festival, which is the last week of July. I'm doing the Brit.com showcase, which is very mm-hmm. exciting, and a sort of TV gala and stuff out there. It's the first it's time I've done it. It's exciting. If you're not a comedy industry person, just understand this is like, this is very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. It's a cool thing to do. So, um, so I'm doing that, and then I'm doing... Yeah, if you're in the UK, I'm doing Mock the Week. You can watch that next week. Um, there's another TV show that I'm doing the week after that, which is Safe Word. I think that comes out then. I'm sort of I'm I'm writing a sitcom with Rich Hall at the moment, so that's very exciting. Uh, so we're waiting to see if that's going to get piloted. So we're sort of working with a production company on that. Um, which is great. That's very exciting. So, like, when I get news for that, you'll know. Um, so, I'm doing the thing with Rich, and then I'm doing Edinburgh Fringe. So, my show is called Seven, and it's going to be at 7.10. I thought it would be at 7, so it's a little bit annoying that I've got those extra 10 minutes. At the Assembly Roxy, <coughs> and that's sort of discussing morality ethics why we as people feel the need to respond to big worldwide events like the terrorist attacks and planes disappearing and sort of make them about us why do we as humans feel the need to do that um so it's sort of about that um and that's yeah that's for the whole edinburgh fringe and a show called cast and call woe which is the show i was just talking about and that's the last two weeks that's going to be at half four and then, um, yeah, People Just Do Nothing is the sitcom I'm in. That's about to come out, I think, maybe next month in the summer. Um, and then they've got another series of that in autumn and a film that I'm doing. And then, it's just quite a lot of stuff. So just follow me on Twitter. Yeah, you'll find. Just follow you'll see <laughs> on Twitter. And oh. now you understand why I was inspired by <laughs> this human. <laughs> yeah, uh, come find me. Come and find her. Look, turn on any device and she'll be on it. Um, You're having tea with Alice. Thank you.